Good morning. I get to warm you up for John this morning. I want you to uh, turn your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to have you working your fingers a little bit this morning. So if you have your Bibles available, I'm going to have you turning to a couple different passages of Scripture. We've been studying over the last year now, uh, well, I guess it's been over a year now, uh, the book of Revelation and uh, dealing really uh, specifically and critically with the first chapter and the first opening few verses of the chapter. And I want to look with you this morning specifically uh, at uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, and we're really going to look at just the opening introduction, the introductory uh, statement, the first, really first sentence of verse 4. Uh, the book of Revelation begins uh, very unlike the way that I write letters. Um, one of the things I'm finding myself profoundly struck with is when you, um, especially dealing with New Testament letters and especially with John's writings, that the opening statements of his letters are unlike mine. And what I mean by that is uh, I do emails. If I don't check my emails every couple of days, I find that I have like 60 emails. Most of them are things that are not uh, important, uh, junk mail, advertisements, those kinds of things. So I'm constantly doing emails. And because I'm constantly doing emails, I find myself just wanting to get the, to, the, to the issue at hand. My emails are very short, very concise. It's not uh, a long, drung out, you know, three-page type of thing. And probably not meaning to be uh, insincere, but when I, uh, if you get an email from me, probably the first few lines as I've written that, uh, I'm thinking, uh, you know, how do you begin? Normally the first couple statements are just statements to kind of break the water, and then you say what you want to say, and then you send off the email. Um, the New Testament letters, especially those of John, are not like that. Uh, I believe that the opening statements of his letters in particular, and especially the book of Revelation, are crucial and set the tone for the entire book itself. Now we know that uh, after dealing with these first three verses. When you open uh, your Bibles and looking at this letter from the outset, you're going to note that, uh, if you have the NIV at least, right above verse 1, there's a little word in italics there. It's uh, prologue. Okay, it's the prologue, and it tells you that these first three verses are the words before the actual prophecy itself. And these first three verses set the parameters and the boundaries of the prophecy of the book. So they're very, very crucial. And if you read any commentaries on the book of Revelation, or I have a study Bible, and if you would even read the beginning of, uh, of a study Bible, it's going to tell you uh, that especially the opening sentence, which is in this prologue, highlights the entire book of Revelation. It reads, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's, that word revelation there is the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means an unveiling or a divine uncovering. And so this first opening statement is the divine unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now that statement colors the entire book of Revelation. Everything in the book of Revelation falls within the parameters, falls within the context of Jesus Christ being divinely unveiled, which means everything in the book comes back to him. Everything comes back to him. When you, uh, when you get into the book of Revelation, <clears throat> what you're encountering is a divine revelation, a divine unveiling of who he is. That's the boundaries and the parameters of the book. So it's really weighty how he begins the book. After these first three verses, uh, and he establishes the tone of the book, he establishes the theme of the book, he moves into verse 4 with an introduction. Now again, uh, his introductions, um, 
I tried not to look at his introduction like I would look at my introduction. Throw a name up there, throw an opening statement, and then get on with what you want to talk about. I believe his is a little bit more specific. This is what he says. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, there's a couple obvious things that are, uh, that are given here. Number one, it tells us who the letter is given to, um, which is the seven churches, specifically the seven churches that were located in the province of Asia. Um, but also, um, uh, it gives us who the letter is from, which is John, and tradition tells us that's John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, one of the sons of Zebedee. But there's a couple other things that are going on uh, that are perhaps maybe unseen or beneath the surface that you might not have picked up on uh, in this opening statement that I want to talk about. And, the, and one specific thing is this, this idea of uh, exposure. Uh, it is the idea with uh, uh, in these seven churches, uh, what you're going to be encountering is there is, a, there is an exposure of sin there's an exposure of circumstances taking place. Now, this is consistent, and I want to kind of begin. If you, uh, again, I'm going to have you working your fingers this morning. I hope you're prepared. Uh, one of the, if you want to turn back to the gospel, according to John chapter 3, I'll be there in a second. But one of the things that's really evident in uh, all of John's writings is this element uh, of exposure, which we're finding really crucial, especially in these seven churches. Um, and we're going to be dealing with that this morning. But it's in, it's in, all, it's in all of his, uh, it's in John's gospel and it's all of his writings in the New Testament. Uh, he talks about specifically in, in uh, chapter 3 of the gospel, which we're going to look at in a second. And in 1 John chapter 1, he talks about this idea or this language of light and darkness. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now that's, that's uh, kind of uh, ambiguous language. But if you're going to look at it conceptually, God is light. And in him is no darkness. So however you want to define darkness, it's that which is not in God. So whatever is not included in who he is, we call darkness. So God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, Light and darkness. Now, what's really interesting is when you come back into the Gospel of John, chapter 3, this light and darkness has an exposing element to it. Okay? God is light, and anything outside of him is darkness. But when you get into him who is light, he exposes your darkness. Okay, give me an example of this. In chapter 3, Jesus is in a conversation with Nicodemus. And at the tail end of that conversation, uh, he makes some very aggressive statements. And beginning at verse 19 down through, uh, and then extending through verse 21, this is what he says. He says, this is the verdict. Okay, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And again, we establish that God is light. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Now listen to this. Everyone who does evil hates the light. The idea of does evil, it's a lifestyle of evil. It's a lifestyle of darkness. It's a lifestyle that is not in God. However you want to describe darkness, it's, it's a lifestyle that is not associated with Him. It's a lifestyle that's distinct from Him. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and it says, will not come into the light for fear that His deeds will be exposed. So somehow, see, there's this, there's this element of God. There's this attribute of who he is in terms of exposing sin. That if, if we, a person who is living in darkness, they will not come into the light because when you come into the light, darkness or sin is exposed in your life. So there's a characteristic of God of exposing darkness. And in fact, as you continue on in that passage, he says, verse 21, But whoever lives by the truth 
comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done by God. So everybody is being exposed except for those who are living in darkness. And then there's a rejection. They don't want to be exposed. Okay, there's, this kind of, there's this kind of attitude. There's this, there's, this, there's this taken for granted kind of exposure that's going on in John's writings. Now, the reason I'm talking to you about this um, is it's, I've been finding it really heavy uh, dealing with these seven churches, for instance. Uh, as you begin to look at the seven churches, and they're given, uh, if you would ha- have your Bibles available, in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, you have these seven churches that are listed. Now, in each one of these seven churches, there is an element of exposure taking place. God is exposing what's going on in those seven churches, whether that would be sin, whether that would be their circumstances, whether that would be the suffering that they're undergoing. Whatever, whatever details are going on in these churches, there is an element of exposure. God is coming in, and He is exposing what's taking place in these churches. For instance, you look at the first church, which is the church of Ephesus. In the church of Ephesus, uh, he, begins the, he begins this, uh, this the, uh, uh, the statement to them. He begins his address to them by saying this. These are the words of him uh, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Then he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So he gives a detailed account. He exposes in detail what's going on inside of that church. He talks about their deeds. He talks about their perseverance. He talks about their hard work. He talks about their not being able to tolerate wicked men, uh, how they've uh, uh, tested and improved and have found them false. All these details. But then this is what he also exposes, verse 4. He says, yet I hold this against you. And this is really specific in that he is exposing a spiritual error, a spiritual problem, a major spiritual issue in their life in verse 4. He says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And of course, their first love was him. Verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, now listen to how how, how crucial this is for him. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'll come and remove your church. This is such a critical issue that if you do not repent, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your church from its place. Now, the details of Ephesus is this church by this time is probably probably around a uh, uh, 25 to 30 year church that's been established um, and we have, of course, other details. Uh, we've got how the church uh, began and how it started back in the, in the book of Acts chapter 19. You can read there and how Paul comes in and there's a, a revival breaks out. These, these uh, uh, disciples of John the Baptist uh, receive the Holy Spirit and this whole town is in uproar and it's phenomenal. A great revival breaks out and people are seeking God and there's a lot of details given about uh, what's taking place in that church. Well, sometime after that, Paul writes a letter back to the church in Ephesus, which is the letter of Ephesians, and we get some more details about this church and and the good things that are taking place there and how solid they are. Now, that's 20, 25 years ago, approximately. Now, when you come into the book of Revelation, what you have is these probably are not, well, at least the majority, are not those who belong to that church in that day. These are the children, perhaps even the grandchildren of that church. 
And what you, what you really get the sense of is this church here in Revelation that Jesus is addressing, they're doing all the things that their parents had done, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. I mean, they're still showing up to church on Sunday. They're still paying the tithe. They're still keeping the upkeep on the building, mowing the lawn, doing all those kinds of things, maintaining even the doctrine and teaching and all of that kind of stuff, but they've lost sight of him. So this is a very aggressive exposure. Jesus comes and he exposes what's going on in that church and he says, repent. Exposure. First church, which is Ephesus. Now, as you begin to go through these seven churches, he does it not only, uh, of course, uh, to Ephesus, but each church. And one of the things I begin to find uh, really significant is that... um, He's aggressive on this. Um, I don't want to say that Jesus doesn't have tact, <laughs> but uh, I mean, he really doesn't pull too many punches. I mean, he's very, he's very forward. In fact, uh, uh, look at the church of uh, Pergamum, and we'll just go to the address. In verse 14, he says, I hold, he goes, uh, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Okay? That's what he says. You have people there. This is in the church who hold to the teachings of Balaam. And we know about Balaam and all that he did in teaching Balak to entice the Israelites to, uh, uh, to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, committing sexual morality. They also have a group there, the Nicolaitans. Okay? He addresses them very aggressively. You go down to the next church, Thyatira, and this is really significant. They got a gr- he's got a woman in the church there. There's a woman in that church that Jesus identifies as Jezebel. And we know Jezebel of the Old Testament. He takes this, this wicked queen of the Old Testament and he takes her name and he slaps it on this woman in the congregation. It would be nice to have her come into your church. Okay? He openly addresses that. I mean, just specifically exposes that. You go on to uh, the church of Sardis. And, of course, Sardis, listen to how aggressive he is with them. Um, beginning at uh, verse, the beginning, he says, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation. Listen to this. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. This is what he's exposing. Hey, everybody thinks you're, you know, all together. Everybody thinks you're, you know, the best thing, really into, really hot, all of that. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but I'm going to reveal this. I'm going to expose you. You're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour of which I will come. Really aggressive with Sardis. And, of course, the last one I want to uh, look at is Laodicea. And, of course, we're skipping Philadelphia, and there's some de- uh, details there that are important. But in Laodicea, uh, this is the group that's uh, kind of wishy-washy. They're just, hey, they're not hot. Um, I mean, they're not after him, but they're not against him. They're just kind of, you know, dead bodies in a pew. You ever been in a church like that before? It says in verse, uh, verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You make me sick, is what he says. Okay? You say, I am rich, and I have acquired much wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Isn't that aggressive? Now, as you begin to look at this, and of course, the, uh, the parameters, and this is really important, the parameters of the book of Revelation is what, your, what, what, what the context, what the parameters are, is a divine unveiling of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is unveiled. So when you come into these seven churches, the answer 
See, Jesus just doesn't come and criticize them. He just doesn't come and expose them and say, hey, this is your problem. He comes and exposes and shows what's going on and says, hey, I am the answer for what you're going through. So each one of these heavy critiques, uh, Jesus comes and says, hey, I am the answer for what you're going through. Embrace me. Now, if, if that was the end of it, if that was the extent of the exposure, that would be enough. Because Jesus comes to each church and says, this is what you're facing, this is your issue, this is your set of circumstances, this is what's going on, and I'm the answer for what's taking place. But what I found significant is, is when, when you get into these seven churches, he's not just, now think about how aggressive this is, especially in light of what we have read. Um, I mean, he's aggressive in dealing with the church, but... When you get into these seven churches, you're going to realize that Jesus just doesn't expose uh, the church to itself. He exposes this church to all seven churches. Each church is exposed in front of all seven churches. Now, what I'm getting at, and I didn't pick this up at first, but when you look at the introduction, it says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia... I, at first, when reading the book of Revelations and some uh, book of Revelation, and some commentators have suggested this, that I thought that what you were dealing with were seven, seven different letters to seven churches. That's what I thought I was dealing with. Jesus is writing seven letters to seven different churches. But when you get in, what you find is, what you find is, this is one letter written to seven churches. One letter. And, all, and what's really powerful in this is all the language. All the language suggests this in the opening chapter. When he's addressing the church, he's not, he, it isn't singular. None of the language is singular. All of it is plural language. Verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. That's not, you know, individual. It's not singular. He's, he, you know, if this is seven letters, he's not saying to the church of Ephesus in the province of Asia. It's seven churches. And when you go down, for instance, to verse 11, listen to what he says. Jesus comes in a loud voice, and this is what he says to John. He says, write on a scroll. He doesn't say write on seven scrolls. He says, write on a scroll and send it to the seven churches. So this was one letter written on one scroll that was copied and sent to all seven churches. And again, all the language is plural. For instance, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. That you there is plural. You go down a few verses, uh, beginning in the middle of verse 5 at the, at the new uh, paragraph. He says, to him who has loved us and has freed us from our sins... By his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, priests there is plural, to serve as God and Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now you extend all the way down and all the language here uh, is plural. It's, it's to uh, all seven churches. Now what's also significant is when you go down and you read through these seven churches, I find it really significant that when you look at the church, for instance, the first church, Ephesus, it's an address to Ephesus. There's an exposure in Ephesus. But it's not just, see, the implications. Now think about this. The implications of Jesus exposing what's going on in Ephesus is not just for Ephesus. It's for all seven churches. Uh, and we know this because when you come down to the end of the uh, address to Ephesus, at verse 7, this is what he says. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. In other words, they, this is an address not just to one, this is addressed to all seven. Which really, really threw me. I thought, well, hey, that doesn't, 
I mean, this is a letter specifically to Ephesus. This isn't a letter that's, that's written to somewhere else. But when you go throughout the New Testament, one of the things that I begin to, uh, to run into is that one of the common practices in the New Testament was that one letter that was written run, one church was oftentimes shared with another church and even sometimes commanded to share with another church. An example, uh, Paul writes a letter to, Col- to the Colossians. And by the way, in uh, Colossae, Colossae was located in Asia Minor not too far from Laodicea or Heropolis. And so when you look at these seven churches in Asia Minor, there are actually more churches in Asia Minor than seven. Colossae is in Asia Minor. And it's really close. They say, what, 15, 30 miles or so from Laodicea. It's a half a day's walk. And so what you have in Colossae, listen, and I'll just read this to you. Uh, At the end of the book, this is what Paul says. Verse 16. Of chapter 4. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from the Laodicea. And so you were, what, what, what was common practice was, is that, hey, I'm writing this, a letter, uh, this letter to you, however aggressive it may be, and we don't have, we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. But after I, after I write this letter uh, to you, I want you to take this letter, I want you to send it over there, and I want them to read what I Because somehow, somehow the idea was is that the exposure that's going on in the church was not only for the betterment of the church, but it was for the betterment of everybody else. Now, I don't know if you're putting this together or not, but do you know how aggressive that is? Um, Wouldn't it be kind of neat if like Sunday morning you showed up and Saturday you and your wife had been fighting you know, my wife and I never fight, but, uh, you know, let's say you and your wife have been fighting, and so what do you do? You know, you call the pastor, because he'll take your side, and uh, you go there to counseling, and, uh, you know, he's a jerk, doesn't take your side, he takes your wife's side, and so you get there, and, you, you know, he's counseling you, you're walking through some of these difficult issues, probably you've all been there. Uh, he's helping out, he's exposed, some things have been revealed, that you've hurt your wife, that your wife has hurt you, that... Uh, You've hurt your husband, and your husband has hurt you. All these difficulties, you're walking through these, and and some very embarrassing and yet really real things have been exposed. It's a redemptive time. It's phenomenal. Uh, You feel better. You go home. Sunday morning, you come to church. You stand there, and you're listening. And pastor, in the middle of his sermon, gives this illustration that sounds strangely familiar to you. And he's talking about your counseling session that you had yesterday. And right in the middle of the illustration, he looks over and he says, Hey, would you stand up, please, uh, Harry and Sally? Uh, would you stand up? I'm talking to you guys about the conversation that I had with him yesterday in the counseling session. See, this is what Harry did to Sally. And he opens that whole thing up in the middle of the conversation, or in the middle of the, uh, in the sermon, to, the, uh, to all the con- uh, congregation. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> wouldn't that be neat? Uh, I thought about the implications of a DS that comes to a church that has uh, gone through a crisis, that has gone through a difficulty, and there's been, oh, I mean, just pain and hurt, and there's been all this stuff, and, and he comes to address it, and he takes the notes, and he writes it down, and the next week, uh, when the district newsletter comes out, you find that the whole thing is published in the dis- district newsletter. That's the church, that's what's taking place here in the book of Revelation. Isn't that odd? Now, when you look at the, when you, now get this, now again, this is our and I don't want to call seeker sensitive, though it's, I kind of like to do that, 
It's this, see, there's an element that's going on in our churches today, and you've got to hear this in the right light, but there's this element of hiding. See, if you offend me or if something goes on here that I don't like, I'll just pack my bags. There's a church five minutes down the road that's bigger, that has dem- less demands to me, and they'll accept me and tell me everything's okay, and I can worship Jesus there and everything will be fine. That's our culture. That's not their culture. See, that's not their culture. And when you get, into the, when you get in here uh, to, the, to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and you get into this letter, see, when he says, hey, John, to the seven churches in Asia, that is a loaded and packed statement where there is exposure going on not only to each individual church, but each church is being exposed to the overall of all the churches in Asia Minor and, of course, the whole entire world because you and I today are reading what's taking place here. Now, I found that so aggressive and so strange that uh, I begin to kind of search. Now, I found it, obviously, in Colossians, where Paul says, the letter that I'm writing you, send it over to Laodicea, and the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans, I want them to send back to you, and I want you guys to exchange those. But I begin to go through and, and look at this uh, exposure type of, this exposure, exposing element in Christianity in the first century, and I begin to find it everywhere. A couple uh, places that I found extremely significant uh, were in the book of Acts. If you want to turn there, I kind of want you to look at this with your own eyes. And we're going to kind of pick and choose through this scene. But it's in chapter 10, and it's a very familiar scene. I think this is super significant. I think this is incredibly significant. And uh, what you have going on in chapter uh, 10 is uh, uh, Peter and his vision, if you remember, at Cornelius' house. And the whole uh, thrust of the vision is that uh, um, God is pouring out his spirit on the Gentiles. And, of course, the Jews uh, have looked at the Gentiles, who are us, as unclean, unworthy, separate themselves from them. Uh, you know, that kind of, that was the Jewish mentality. And God is saying, hey, uh, don't call what I have made clean, unclean. Now, beginning down and around verse 9, it says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Notice how he falls asleep when he's praying. That's Peter for you. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call, listen to this, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. This is not just once, because we're dealing with Peter here. This is not just one time, but three times specifically. Three times specifically. And immediately she was taken back into heaven. Okay? Now, what takes place, and we won't go through the rest of it, but what takes place the remainder of the chapter is the dream is exposed, the dream is revealed, the dream is made clear, and Peter realizes that God is going to pour his spirit out upon the Gentiles. Now, you, what happens after this, there's some very significant uh, things that are taking place in the early church. But also before it, what you have is right before, and this is really significant, right before this, we have in chapter 9, Paul's conversion, Saul to Paul. Okay? His conversion experience. And we know from some of other, uh, other of Paul's writings, and I want you to turn over to the book of Galatians, which is right after, or right before uh, the book of Ephesians. Okay, Galatians, right before Ephesians, chapter uh, 2, which is right before chapter 3. <laughs> what you have is Paul has been talking about 
his calling by God. And uh, we know some details that after his conversions, he went away for how many years? Like 14 years he's been away. And what we suspect is, is we have Paul's conversion. Now put this together. You have Paul's conversion in chapter 9. And then while Paul leaves and after his conversion, and God is bringing all this together. And because of what God has done in the life of Paul, he speaks to Peter about this, preparing Peter. Hey, this I've got a, I've got a ministry. I'm going to dump my spirit upon the Gentiles. He's called Paul for this purpose. Paul leaves. He, he, he tells Peter about this. So you have a number of years. God has told him three times in the dream, very aggressive, spoken to Peter about this. And you have the Gentile, uh, whole God moving among the Gentiles taking place. Well, Paul goes back and he's talking about a situation that arised in Peter long after that. This is really significant. Now, we're going to look around verse 11. 11. Around verse 11, down through verse 17, and then on to chapter 2. Uh, So chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something uh, made uh, by man. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation through Jesus Christ. Uh, For you had heard of my previous way of uh, life in Jerusalem, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. It was advancing in Judaism beyond my years. He goes on, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Okay, He did this. Go down to chapter 2, verse 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along with me. Um... I went in response to a revelation set before uh, them, set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles, but I did this privately. And then he goes on, and you come down to verse 11. This is where he opposes Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now hear this. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the Jews. Or it's a Christian group of Jews uh, in, 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 in the ranks. Verse 13. The other Jews joined in his hypocrisy so that even by their hypocrisy, Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all. <laughs> See, this wasn't a pulling Peter aside, uh, you know, apologizing, making things light. So he opposes now, and he's not only, now get this, this is Peter, huge pillar in the early church. He's not only talking about how he said to Peter in front of them all, but he's writing about this in the book of, uh, to the church in Galatia. So this is exposed to the early church of his day in which this letter was going to circulate. He said, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And then he goes on and he explains what he's talking about. But he confronts Peter in front of them all, exposing him not only to the group that was there, which is the leaders of the early church. James was there, who was a pillar in the early church. He exposes him not only there, but he writes in the book of Galatians. Now, my first thought is, I wonder how Peter is going to respond to that. I wonder how he's going to respond to that. Is he going to be angry? Is there going to be some backlash? Paul's not allowed to come to revival there anymore. He gets another event. That's what we would do in our day, in our churches. But as I begin to look at, and this letter was written, um, 
we believe sometime, uh, well, that incidence there was obviously before the letter of Galatians, so we believe that the, uh, the letter of Second Peter was written after that incident, and I find it really significant how Peter speaks of Paul. Verse 14 of Second Peter, chapter 3. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures. So the weight that he puts upon Paul. So the way that he addresses Peter was seen as just, you know, understandable. Kind of understandable. It wasn't out of the ordinary. It wasn't, oh, how could he do this? He's never coming around. And there's a big schism that takes place, and Paul is this way, and Peter's. See, none of that took place here. There was an exposure here. Now, if you would be willing, go back to Revelation chapter 1. What we're finding in the, in the book of Revelation, what we're just confronted with, is that you're dealing with not seven individual letters to seven churches, even in light of all the difficult, aggressive things that Jesus is addressing in these churches. You have one letter written to seven churches. So each church is going to read the address of all the other churches. And more than likely, this letter was scattered throughout the churches of, uh, of Asia Minor and eventually the, the, uh, all the churches of the Christian world at that time. Now you would say, well, what does it have to do with me? Well, I've been talking to John. And here's what we're going to do next Sunday. <laughs> i just kidding. <laughs> no one shows up. <laughs> um, now, my first response is, hey, you know, and then you have passages, which I didn't go into, just for time's sake, which are the whole, uh, um, you know, uh, James, confess your sins to one another. What, you know, what are you talking about, Jeremiah, that, uh, you know, that God's going to, uh, uh, you know, expose us in the middle of uh, a congregation and that the pastor, is, as the proclaimer of God's word, is supposed to stand up and, well, no, no, we're not talking about that. But what we're talking about uh, and I believe this with all my heart, and God has been really dealing it with me, is that when there is sin in my life, uh, this, that we've been dealing a lot with this issue of light and darkness. And um, darkness in your life, sin is a relational issue. See, I don't, sin is not like, you know, uh, uh, money that you've stolen, like the actual money. Uh, sin is not like a, a TV program you're watching. Sin is a relational. It's uh, it's my response to him. It's, it's, uh, it's saying no to God. And what I found in my life is that I'm living in the light. Uh, there will be from time to time that he will reveal um, darkness. He'll reveal an area of my life that's not touched by him. He'll reveal an area of my life that does not belong to him. At that point, I have a choice. I have a choice of responding to him or have a choice of rebelling in him. Uh, exposure. Um, in this exposure, God loves me so much. See, I believe that if you're going to live for him and you're going to be running after him, you're going to be exposed because he loves you too much to not reveal to you the areas of your life that are bringing death. And any area of your life that is not touched by him, any area of your life that is darkness, any area of your life that, that is separated, that is distinct from, that is not resourced by, that is not filled with who he is, 
His essence. Any area of your life that is identified like that, will, if it is not exposed and it is hidden or it's not dealt with in the church, will bring full-blown death. Now that is so, it's so absolutely evident, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. You have story after story after story of sin that was not dealt with and hid within the community. And of course, uh, there are major death consequences for that. One of my favorite stories was Achan back in, uh, I don't I wrote it down, I think, back in... Uh, yeah, Joshua, when they're going in and taking the land and they're, they're all these victories and then all of a sudden they're falling flat on their face. Well, they've got sin. They've got sin in the camp. And unrevealed, uh, unrevealed sin, unexposed sin, sin that's not dealt, dealt with is, is bringing death within all the Israelites. Now, that's, that is a spiritual reality that God dealt with there. But when you come into the early church, one of the things we were finding in the book of Revelation is that those who are not, get this, those who are being exposed that are not responding are affecting the entire body. And there's several examples of this. You have the example going on in the church of Pergamum. You have people there who are not responding. But the most aggressive one is in the church of Thyatira. This woman Jezebel, this is what he says. Nevertheless, I have, against, uh, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. You tolerate. The idea of tolerate, you know what that means? The word tolerate there literally means dismiss. Yeah, it's kind of like you have a person, here's what happens. Uh, and I've seen this. I've seen this. I haven't been around long, but I've been around long enough to see this. That you have what happens is a person in a congregation who is blatantly living in sin, and everybody just dismisses it. They say, I, I, I've seen it. I say, I've, I've seen it where people say, well, that's just how they are. We did a revival. This is not a Nazarene church, so I can say it. Um, we did a revival in Indiana at a Wesleyan church. And the worship leader, this lady, um, was, uh, fell in love with her boss at, at her job. And she left her husband over this. And uh, he was a workaholic and, and wasn't a good father and put his business above her. And there were certain problems there. It wasn't just that he was, you know, she was altogether evil. But uh, her response to that, uh, of course, was to just, uh, uh, you know, get with her boss. Now, uh, so she divorced her husband, and then she began to bring her boss to church. And her justification was, is we never slept together, uh, you know, while we were, you know, while I was married. But they went out on dates, you know, emotionally, she was involved with this guy. And um, I talked to the pastor about it. He was just torn. It was about, it was a church was just suffering over it. It was about to be a church split. And uh, I talked to him and I said, what are you going to do about this? And he says, well, that's just how she is. And that is, that is full-blown sin that will, that's producing death in that congregation. And that congregation will suffer because of that. Um, that whole deal was exposed by God, and she is refusing to repent of that. And what's going to happen is, if that's going to, she, hey, she's not going to be in the light. She's not going to respond to him. She's not going to walk in him, because walking in him is going to continually expose that. Going to, he's going to continually deal with her about that. Now, what you have, and this is the perfect illustration for Thyatira, is you have this woman Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is not just this evil woman. Hey, it says in the passage that God, I have given her time to repent. I've exposed this to her. I've dealt with her on this. This is what he says. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed uh, to idols. Verse 21. I have given her time to repent. I've talked to her about this, man. I've exposed this in her life. I've dealt with her on this. I've say, I, I, and, and now he's exposing it to the entire congregation. And it's, it's not even now that, now think about this, it's not even now that he's exposing it to the entire congregation. He has already exposed this to the entire congregation and they're dismissing it. 
It's not that big of a deal. I mean, hey, it's just, it's going to cause too much pain in the body to deal with this. There's going to be too much of a schism. There's going to be too, it's, we would rather just put up with the death in the church than to go through this kind of a split, to go through this kind of a deal. That's what he's saying. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. She is unwilling. And so what you have in the church of Thyatira is that God has already exposed this to her. He's already exposed it to the congregation. And now in this letter, he's exposing it not only to that church, but he's exposing it to all the churches. And you have a woman and a church who's not dealing with that, who are not responding to him to that, and it's going to create full-blown death in the life of the body. I am absolutely convinced. Think about this. This is fantastic. I am absolutely convinced that when God reveals truth to you, when God reveals himself to you and exposes an area of your life that does not belong to him, if it is so serious that if you do not deal with it, it will produce full-blown death in your life. I also think that he loves you enough that if you don't deal with it, he's going to eventually expose you at whole new levels of exposure. And if you continue to reject, if you continue to not respond, you have countless, countless examples in the scriptures of how that is going to bring full-blown death, not only in your life, but full-blown death in your family and full-blown death in the body. In fact, this was such a crucial issue, and this is why I think you have all this exposure going on in the New Testament, that in the early church, they didn't tolerate it. Uh, I like the Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) They don't tolerate death in the church. I mean, you want to know how God feels about this. You want to know how the Holy Spirit feels about this. Um, Hey, he brings in uh, Ananias, you know. You're exposed, man. He would not respond. He would not. <laughs> Fell over dead. Wife comes in, same thing. So, I want to ask you, what are we talking about? How, how does the exposure talk about, uh, how is the exposure talked about in our culture? How does that look, you know, what does that look like here? I think there's elements of, uh, uh, and, you know, some of this is, uh, you know, rather personal, but I have, uh, so I won't give you the details, but, uh, you know, God has exposed me to my wife in several areas. And, and it's, I found as an evangelist, it's easy for me to hide from you. I mean, really easy. Um, evangelist and that calling has, has uh, shown time and time again that evangelists can live utterly, entirely different lifestyles and no one know it, you know. Um, but it's really hard to hide from your wife. <laughs> and it's really hard to hide from your kids. And um, uh, there's been areas in my life where God has just plain flat exposed me right to my wife, and He's He's been speaking to me about it, and I've and I'm good at rationalizing things away. I don't know if you are, but I'm really good at that. And and finally, He just exposes it to my wife, and then hey, if it doesn't deal with there, He exposes it, and He keeps exposing it because He loves me. Uh, one of the ways in which we're uh, going to experience this this next weekend, and maybe even this morning, is. Uh, how does God expose me in, in our culture? Well, I think specifically, there's several different ways you could talk about it, but the way that would relate to us is in a, is in a service like this where uh, we have the, the word preached and, and uh, God begins to deal with us in our life about areas of our life, um, and you're presented with an opportunity. You're presented with an opportunity. God is speaking to you, and he says, stand up in front of everybody on the whole entire church. Uh, be exposed. And that's aggressive. I was... Uh, you know, I've been at churches before as the evangelist, uh, or not as the evangelist, but just speaking. And, and uh, you know, the, the, you're at a different church, and the preacher is preaching. And, and uh, uh, just, man, as he's speaking, God's dealing with you. And, and uh, I've been in your shoes where you're thinking, wow, man, 
I'm the event, you know, I want these guys to have me for revival. I don't want to respond in this message. And um, Hey, you stand up in the middle of the whole, whole congregation and say, hey, this is, this is me. And I respond, and I'm not, I'm not afraid. In fact, I realize that, that, hey, not looking like him is such a serious issue that me not responding and exposing what God's doing in my life will create full-blown death in my life, in my family's life, in my church. And what's phenomenal is, is somehow that releases. Somehow God exposing me releases, and we've seen this, it just releases a whole flood of God moving in the life of the body. Everybody's responding, and everybody's being exposed, and everybody's laying things on the table, and, and God's healing me of this, and God's delivering me of this, and I'm responding to this, and it's all out in the open, and there's nothing hidden, there's no fakeness, there's none of that. Where has God been trying to expose you? Where has God been exposing you? Where has God been dealing with you in your life? Where has God been saying, hey, I want to deal with this? And will you respond? Jesus, we love you this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. I give you the right this morning to expose me, Jesus. I don't know why when I looked at uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, I was shocked. Could it be that sin is such a serious issue? Could it be, Jesus, that sin is not only a serious issue to me, but it's a, that my sin is a serious issue in the life of my family, in the life of my coworkers, in the life of the kingdom work at the church, in the life of the body, that you cannot tolerate it? This is a serious issue for you. And Jesus, I pray that you would not let me get away with sin. I pray that you would not let me get away with areas of my life that don't look like you. And if I'm not responding to you, in the name of Jesus, would you expose me to my wife? Would you expose me to my best friends? Would you expose me to the, the guys that I'm linked with by the hip in ministry? Would you expose me to the church of the Nazareth? Would you expose me to my world? Hey, I don't, I don't want to hide I don't want to have areas of my life that are separate from you. I don't want to live a double lifestyle, Jesus. You love me too much to allow that to happen. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. There's only a few of us here this morning, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond. That's a really, studying this, that's a really risky passage. And it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to say, Jesus, I'm willing to you to do whatever in my life that you need to do. Expose me, embarrass me, make a mockery of me. Do whatever you need to do in my life. I'm willing. Hey, you speak to me about an area of my life, I'm going to respond. There's not going to be any hiding to me. I'm not going to cover up. I'm not just going to sit in my seat and pray when I get home so nobody sees me. I'm going to allow you to expose me. I'm going to allow you to address me. Because somehow that's a free, there's a freedom in that. And there's not only, it not only unleashes your hand to do what you want to do in my life, but it unleashes your hand to do what you want to do in the life of the body of my church and the life of my family. Somehow, me responding unleashes you in the life of my family. Maybe he's dealing with you this morning and maybe you... Maybe you haven't been responding. or Maybe you have an area of your life that he's been talking to you about. Hey, you want to be exposed? You want to just stand and say, hey, Jesus is dealing with me. He's stretching me. And I want to respond. Father, we want to spend the next few moments seeking you this morning.
against our own will because it's what we need and we want you to just take us take us to a new level a new place and we want to let the hand of God be released in our lives to see a brand new thing God let there not be death please let there not be death in my life let there not be death in my family or my church. We want to see the hand of God. We want to see your face. We want to live in the light and freedom and purity and peace. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for Jeremiah and Corinda and CJ and the calling to which you've called them. And I pray, God, that you would may your hand be released in their lives ministry in these days. We love you. We're excited about this day. And uh, may we just dwell on this truth as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Be dismissed. Stay around.